everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leg Upward Inclusion Spotlight, Making the Invisible Visible with me, Dr. Aparajita Jidagunta. And today's guest is somebody that I've actually never met in person, but we have so much in common that it's mind-blowing that I haven't met her in person yet, especially considering that she now lives in the great state of Michigan. Woot, woot. Uh, go blue, by the way. And her name is Sheila Lal, and she is actually an NLC, New Leaders Council alum from St. Louis from the year 2017. A little bit about Sheila. Sheila is a perpetual career explorer, but centers all of her work on self-educating and unlearning. Raised, educated, and radicalized in Missouri, Sheila has infused her Midwest upbringing with a constant questioning of what it means to be Indian American in a culture that only understands a black-white paradigm. She has also invested in South Asia, having worked in Sri Lanka and India, and uses those experiences to better understand and build community with new South Asian immigrants in Michigan, her new home. And a little bit more about Sheila is that she actually has her BS in stats from the University of Missouri and a BA in international studies as well, and an MBA from the University of Michigan. And girl, can I just tell you how many more ways in which we connect that I, you know, had not even realized? And especially as an NLC fellow and alum, it is my utmost pleasure to welcome Sheila Lal to this episode. Hi, Sheila. Thank you. I'm really excited. Me too. Okay. So I don't even know where to start. First of all, stats. So I'm like such a huge stats geek. So I just want to say that I forgot how I wrote that and I sound way more impressive in writing than when you (laughs) meet me in person. So yeah, I actually started undergrad with an econ major. And by the time I took my first econ class, I was already pretty deep into stats and math requirements Mm. and realized how little I wanted to get a degree in economics. So I decided to pivot slightly and not quote unquote waste the credits I'd already earned and made the very grave error of getting an incredibly difficult degree alongside master's students who had been doing this type of research and like studying for years. But I survived it. And I think about statistics much more critically, but big disclaimer, I don't actually practice. I'm not a statistician. I don't claim to be. I only claim to say that I care about the role that stats plays in uh, our everyday life. Absolutely. And I think that's actually why I feel like you are my kindred spirit is because so until my TBI, I was sort of slated to be like the next stats magician Mm. to come out of my department. And then something switched in the process of my brain injury and like, you know, me rebuilding myself and me understanding numbers again. And I'm like, I can make up anything I want, really. Yeah. Yeah. That is what my degree taught me. Yeah. (laughs) and I came out of that just so jaded yeah but I was like listen I respect it but I am also deeply irreverent about it yeah a hundred percent and so that's why I think like I you know I call you a kindred spirit is that I don't practice I just know 
how to manipulate that. And mm -hmm. I know how to recognize when others are manipulating statistics for their yeah. benefit. And then I get to have that wonderful opportunity to be like, so, hey, let's talk about this. And I'm going <laughs> to call you out. Yeah. Or even at the basic level, like you said, I did my MBA from Michigan and mm. a lot of the MBA like academic experience is around surveys and trying to gather a lot of information to then like have a data set to play with so you can people can say that they're starting to understand how data influences strategy mm. but before you can even get to that I saw how so many people just didn't know how to design surveys and my like little like stats academic heart was so hurt like how do you how do you even get valid data if your if your surveys are so messy or leading Mm -hmm. you know yep yep or just like oh uh, oh we could I feel like we need to come back and have just a whole conversation <laughs> on survey building yeah. <laughs> survey methodology and design right like, <laughs> oh I mean that was my favorite part when I was teaching stats is to I would always have my students develop these surveys and they would bring them back and I'm just every single semester without fail I would be sitting there like what planet am I on right now <laughs> yeah but this is why like stem and big data and data design and integration needs to be so a part of every aspect of curriculum development mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely so I'm going to do a very hard segue about something I'm deeply curious about yeah you're Fulbright yes you went to Sri Lanka. I did. Delving into film culture as a, a lens to understand gender-based violence. Yes. And then in India, you were working at a social enterprise that trains and employs young people in Eastern India. And oh my gosh, can I be you? Oh, that was a very weird part of my life. It was a lot of sweating. So if you want to sweat, go for it. <laughs> It doesn't sound sweaty on paper. On paper, yes. Yeah, so I lived in South Asia for two years. I was really lucky that I was awarded a Fulbright Research Fellowship after I graduated from undergrad. And to be honest, I, I didn't think I would get it because so few Fulbright programs recognize visual arts as a valid way to understand culture. And luckily in South Asia, like film is so integral to daily entertainment. As an Indian American who has lived in India, I lived in India uh, for a study abroad program for half a year before applying for uh, the Sri Lanka Fulbright, I had the opportunity to experience film culture in a, a non-Hindi dominated area. I was raised in a film family. My grandfather, my grandparents immigrated from North India in the 60s and with my grandfather living in what's now the Rust Belt, he there weren't as many South Asians and to kind of fill that cultural Void started to collect Indian cinema, primarily Hindi cinema, and that's what I was raised with. So I, as I went through undergrad and started to explore non-Hindi South Asian films, I realized that there's such a, a knowledge gap for South Asian Americans. We all, by default, assume that Hindi language film is the only thing that exists. And I wanted to take some time to get a sense of what that looks like in Sri Lanka, especially in a 30-year civil war context wow so is it safe to say that the majority of the films you experienced in sri lanka were tamil no so tamil is the minority language mm. um yeah so 
most people in Sri Lanka speak Sinhala. Um, that's actually oh. the crux of the civil war that started in the late 60s, early 70s, is the disenfranchisement of Tamil people through legislation and through different uh, government acts. And this idea that if you are not part of the majority, you're not part of the country. So when I moved to Sri Lanka, I thought that there would be, I knew there was a national archive. I assumed there'd be some films. I was pretty shocked, but not surprised when I like internalized that the, the war, which was incredibly violent and just was very destructive for everybody, wasn't going to save arts. It wasn't going to save any part of culture um, that wasn't already embodied in the way that people, in the way people live. So the films that I actually had access to were all in Singhala, but they were all art house films. So they were films that were created, produced, and filmed for the international audience. When I did try watching films that were for the island, I found that the Singhala was actually so highbrow that my friends who spoke Singhala didn't even understand it because it wasn't colloquial enough. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was a really fascinating learning curve and like understanding of what film looks like on an island of 18 million or 21 million people. Wow. Yeah, because, you know, I actually grew up in India for 14 years Mm. and, you know, zero to 14. Uh And a lot of what you're saying is not what the mainstream in South India Mm-hmm. I'm not even talking about North Indian Bollywood. Yeah. I'm talking yeah. about, you know, because there, as you know, from experience, there is a tangible divide. Yeah. But even in South India, that's why I asked you about the Tamil film mm-hmm. is because we are taught that the majority of what is being absorbed is just, you know, Tamil Bollywood, whatever it's called. Cause you know, Hollywood. Tamil- no, no, no. Belugu's claimed Hollywood, sorry. No, uh, Hollywood. Oh, Hollywood. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what we're taught is is sort of the mainstream. Yeah. And so for you to tell me that there's this whole other Sinhala film aspect, which now I'm like, okay, does that fall into any of the hashtag woods? So it's fascinating because when the first Sinhala language film came out in the 40s, I think it was early 40s, maybe early 50s. The local press wrote, it looks like India has gotten another regional language because that's how it was filmed. It was filmed exactly like Hollywood and Bollywood movies of that time period. Hmm. Um, and for the most part, the Sri Lankan or Sinhala language films that were produced were exact replicas, like 100% ripped off. Like I would hear old. Sinhala songs and know the Hindi versions instead. So it wasn't that the Sinhala film industry was incredibly robust. Like there just wasn't enough money to validate that that business. But it did exist and it still exists. It's it's a very small, very, very small industry. But the island itself doesn't doesn't support Tamil language or Sri, Sri Lankan Tamil language cinema. That doesn't really exist. Instead, there is a lot of importing from Hollywood or from like the Chennai dominated language uh, film industry to the island. So I remember seeing a handful of Tamil movies when I was in, in Sri Lanka. And all of this in the context that you aren't actually Tamil. Correct. Oh yeah. my gosh, how was that? So in undergrad, 
I actually did student radio. I was part of KCOU, which is the University of Missouri's college radio station, and realized like there was, I really wanted to do like some sort of South or South Asian or Bollywood music program, but each music program is two hours once a week. And I thought, well, I can't just play Bollywood music for two hours. Like that's not structural, structurally sound and it's not sustainable. And so I designed a two hour program that forced me to, and like encouraged me really to understand and learn more about music and film culture in other parts of the, the country and the region, which is how I started watching like Malayali movies, Telugu, Tamil, mm. Marathi, Bengali movies on top of Hindi movies. So I, be, I was incredibly aware. I was really well aware of some of the, the condensed histories of these industries, some of the bigger players, themes. Like you see that there's a lot of similarities between like Brazilian and Malayali films. But if you like Telugu movies are like pure masala, like there's the same oh, level gosh. of gradient between Tamil and Hindi movies. So I started to learn about all of these different film industries. So when I moved to Sri Lanka, like that's how I got the fellowship is by highlighting that I had lived in India before, that I have a stats background and can do like some quantitative work. And that I, with the, the radio program that I had, had clearly invested an immense amount of time and like self-educating in Indian cinema, that I was ready to figure out what that looked like in South Asia and had the tools, or sorry, in Sri Lanka and had the tools to figure out the context from scratch. Yeah, you know, but everything you've talked about is just such an interesting segue into diversity and inclusion. And I want to switch over into that. But before we switch over, what I'm curious about is the role that NLC as this progressive vehicle played in your development in your you know in your personal development in your development of sort of your purpose and passion and progressivism and your voice all of it yeah so I'm going to back up a little bit because I feel like to get to Mm. NLC from my first work experience there's a lot of gaps that are missing so I after Fulbright I moved to Calcutta where I worked at a social enterprise called Imerit Technology Services And that was a really eye-opening experience in terms of how class and foreignness can play such a dividing role in India, especially if somebody who blends in so easily. And and this was also during the 2014 Indian election. And yeah, and recognizing what it looks like to be both there and not, not engaged which is something I had never experienced before. I've been politically active for a very long time. My parents drove me to my first protest at the age of 15 or 16 in Missouri. I did political work in Missouri in undergrad and interned at the state house. And then I left to come to South Asia. And it was being in India that opened my eyes to how integral it is for any like sort of social initiative or business initiative or even corporate American like initiatives to succeed, you have to understand politics. So I came back um, after finishing my time in Calcutta to Missouri and worked at Progress Missouri for three years, three legislative cycles. I invested heavily in understanding not just like how policy is done in Missouri, but who are the players, what do like the power structures and dynamics look like? what are the implications of all of these pieces of legislation and what is like the longevity aspect of it? And so by the time 
I got to know about NLC, I had finished, I'd finished a few really intense, really heavy legislative sessions and living in Columbia, which is about 30 miles away from the Capitol. While it's home, I felt kind of isolated in the people who were my age, who were doing interesting work on issues that impacted so many people's lives. And so I had heard about NLC through the Progress Now Network and decided to apply. St. Louis is about two hours away from Columbia for those who are not familiar with Missouri uh, geography. And I recognized that this was a good opportunity to meet different types of people who I know I would never come across in any other capacity, but also to develop not just like the, the like throwaway network, but to really en- engage and like learn from people who just have very different experiences. So I will say that the relationships I've had, I've created through NLC St. Louis have been some of the best and some of the like most impactful relationships I've met through any of these type of political programs. I left for grad school a couple months after my NLC program ended and my program knew that I wasn't going to be in Missouri for much longer, but they saw that I added value by being able to articulate what was going on in Jeff City and like help enable people to care about what was going on. But on the flip side, I've been able to take those relationships with me to Michigan and through my MBA and now into my corporate job in a way that I don't think can be truly articulated on like a website. I still go, when I go back to St. Louis to visit, I visit my NLC friends plus some friends from other parts of my life, but constantly keeping up with what my friends are doing and understanding that their growth is also my growth has been such a immensely rewarding part of NLC. But I do think this is a great place to segue and talk about diversity and inclusion because that is that is sort yeah. of like my brainchild. And so we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back to talk about what you think diversity and you know, equity and inclusion are and where the mismatches are and what we can do better about it. So we'll be right back. Don't go away. And we're back on Leg Upward Inclusion Spotlight, Making the Invisible Visible with me, Dr. Aparajita Jidagunta. And our guest speaker today is Sheila Lal, who is a Michigan transplant originally from Missouri. But I'm, you know what? I'm still going to claim the Midwest. Yes, 100%. I got, I got to claim something here. Midwest, Midwest. Yes. And Sheila is also Indian American. And has done several stints in study abroads and Fulbright scholarships and other job opportunities in India and Sri Lanka, where she was able to examine culture through the lens of film, among other things. And then, of course, the NLC experience. There is, again, so much to unpack here, but just to level set, Sheila, how would you define your? idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Let's see. I think in my ideal ideal world, Mm -hmm. we would be incorporating inclusive measures in all aspects of our life that would account for diversity or representation and equity in terms of who has historically been able to access resources. How much has, well, that's an unfair question because I already know it has. In what ways has your 
all of your international experience shaped this definition and ideal of inclusion that you have? I actually wouldn't say it was my international experience as much as my post-international experience. Mm. After I lived in Sri Lanka and India, I had like a very, like very comparatively a cushy life. I lived as like low key as I normally do in the US, but that money, it went a lot further and I knew I had inherent status as being an American. And at the age, the, between the ages of 21 to 24, that just looks different. It just feels different. I came back to Missouri to work in politics and immediately was exposed to how folks who had not experienced people different than themselves legislated and what policies they thought were important and what type of worldview they had. And that stark and harsh reality of the legislative process immediately threw me into a different headspace of what does justice look like? In, um, in Missouri politics, or more broadly, in, at the state level in any state in the U.S., hmm. that we have such income inequality, that we have outcome inequality, and a lot of these measures can be solved at the state legislative level, and people who are elected choose not to. I vividly remember being at a reproductive justice conference and understanding the the power triad for the first time, which is Every solution has to include an understanding of race, gender, and class in order to be truly effective. If you leave out one, you're missing a a huge part of what a solution has to offer. And coming from one of the poor, one of the most underdeveloped major cities in India, right before moving back to Missouri, I saw, I had this immediate comparison in my head, like seeing what policy failures looked like and being before that, being in a country that had experienced a 30-year civil war and the trauma that comes after that, mm. being in Missouri and recognizing that, yes, the international experiences at the time, like I had nothing to compare it to as in depth, and now I do. And what do I do with this set of information and these data points? And that's when I started critically thinking about what does the concepts of DEI without having to call it DEI look like in policy. And then when I got to business school, where I heard DEI thrown around as a buzzword constantly, I just thought, well, what role does business have and corporate America have in actually fundamentally shifting the policy realities that we live in to match what they say they want their human capital talent acquisition strategies to look like? So that's kind of been my journey with understanding DEI. Wow, that's really insightful. And I have like five questions and I'm trying to figure out which one I want to ask. But I want to go back to something you said in your form. In your understanding of sort of how this is, you know, D&I is operationalized in America mm-hmm. and yeah. how you've seen the reality of it coming from an international space and all of that. Where do you see this model minority myth that Indian mm. Americans are just so happy to take on. Where do you see that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even get to that. So I guess it like really, it became really evident and obvious once I got to business school. So before business school, I was working in progressive politics and there I was the only Asian American in my generation working in this space. And this is a state of 6 million people. And I'm the only one visible 
in that space. There was a woman a little bit older than me and there was a woman who was a journalist, but that's about it. And I go to business school and 10% of my class is Hindu, Hindu Indian. And I have a 400 person class. So for 40 of us to be either Indian American or Indian nationals really exemplified this idea that diversity in a lot of these like corporate or like really in like white supremacy infused spaces, diversity looks like a model minority myth that we just need melanin. We don't need to take into account of how this melanin arrived here. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, I have been working on deconstructing what it means to be Indian American versus South Asian American in a new American space generally. And what I'm reaching, like what I'm like really understanding is in a black white paradigm, it became incredibly easy for the US Congress in the 1960s to say, no, the rest of the world, we aren't racist. See, we're letting in people from other countries. Oh, and I guess we'll give black people the equal dignity or legislative protections to sort of give them dignity after we've been refusing it for 400 years. And when they created the Immigration Act of 1965, it was purely brain drain. It wasn't mm-hmm. allowing just anybody and it was allowing anybody who would make this country better, mm-hmm. which in the case of Indian Hindus looks like the, it looks like brain drain, which means casteist mm-hmm. or caste-based immigration. The only people who had access to education in the 1960s were people with caste privilege and they were the only people who were allowed to leave. And we come to the U.S. in small pockets, but then obviously ever growing. And we see that if we were at the top of the social hierarchy in India, we should be that here. And that looks like assimilating into whiteness and distancing ourselves from Black folks and Latinx folks, Indigenous folks, other immigrants who've been here. Like the fact that Bangladeshis have been in the U.S. since the late 1800s, and yet we choose not to associate at all is wild to me. Like Bangladeshis have been integrated with Black and Creole communities in the South and along the East Coast since the late 1800s. And we don't pay any, we don't credit that at all as part of South Asian history. Because it becomes so easy to play into what the media deemed as the model minorities, as immigrants like Chinese, new Chinese, new Japanese, and new Indian immigrants Mm -hmm. who came over to help with technology and engineering. We see that as a sign of affirmation as opposed to a form of whitewashing our collective histories and the power that we have built with Black communities, especially during the civil rights movement. And that is incredibly disingenuous and perpetuates our own stagnation in this country. There's a reason that, for the most part, Indians are not, or Asian Americans, they're, they're hired in droves by tech companies, but they're not being promoted into management. If you look at the data, we're seen as a placation, not a real form of inclusion. Absolutely. I mean, you're speaking my language now. It's funny you mention all of this because uh, last month I actually wrote an article for an Indian American magazine about the need for Indian Americans of our generations and you know younger generations, like basically Xennials and beyond, to really add our voices to the mainstream conversation to add to the solidarity of minority, like people of color communities and how we're not that different and we should not buy into this age old model minority myth because 
it's so outdated and it mm-hmm. is so just just filled with its own issues and one of the things one of the issues i mentioned was the supposed freedoms and opportunities that we were being given which came at a cost that just wasn't out in the open yeah you know and i had like about 3 people uh, from the local Michigan community say, how dare, you know, like I was telling you earlier, how dare mm-hmm. you say this? Name, a, name one other country that is as freeing as America. And I was like, um, well. <laughs> and that, that entire sentiment of like, what is free? Yeah. Is it your ability to have economic stability? Mm-hmm. Because arguably, if you, at the, you could have the same economic stability in India yeah. at this point in time. Oh, like there's, it's very like I know so many wealthy people in India who don't want to leave. Yeah, I mean, it if we went back, if my husband and I went back right now, we would be living like modern day kings and queens there, mm-hmm. you know. But we still choose to live here. But it's and so when it's not. Oh I'm, oh, I'm sorry. It's not for. It's not for that service. It's more for you know, the ideals that we're striving for. And it's more for this is the culture that we're more used to. And this, you know, this is the devil that we know better. For sure. But this idea, again, that like America is freeing, my question is, who is it free for? Mm -hmm. I don't think that South Asians, Indian Americans, Indian Hindus specifically, are actually free. We are really restricted by the chains that we put on ourselves Mm -hmm. of we still bring over the incredibly conservative ideology and culture. We don't let that state get free. We don't free ourselves from those ideas. Yeah. We still guilt our children and guilt generations into doing things just because we think it's best. I had, there was, I was talking to a white man on the phone from work and we were starting to get to know each other so we could be better professional colleagues. And I brought up that my parents both worked in the healthcare field and he said, oh, were they disappointed that you weren't a doctor? And I paused for a second and realized like, I wasn't even mad at him. Mm -hmm. This man knows so many Indians through work and through like where he lives. And for all this, like, like the whole logya kehenge, or Mm -hmm. I don't know how they say it in Telugu, but like this whole, what will people say? And the shame that is ingrained in our community, we don't seem to care about what people outside of our community say about us. That it is assumed that our our people, older people in our community or parents in our communities will traumatize their children because they think that that's what is good for them. And I said, no, my parents were never mad or disappointed that I didn't go into healthcare. They, all they ever told me was be the best at whatever you do. And that's a completely different mindset than you will be a disappointment to us if you don't go into medicine, law, engineering. And that is something that really like that realization just angered me so much about the way that Indian Americans choose to frame our own narrative that we adhere to the model minority myth that it isn't dangerous that we aren't like ruining generations of potential talent in so many different fields it doesn't have to be the same things i was supposed to be it wasn't even for me it wasn't even doctor it was you're either going to be a cardiologist or a neurosurgeon. Wow. There was no other options. Holy shit. Yeah. And then I went to U of M and it was like towards the end of my sophomore year, I come home one fine weekend and it was literally like Mahabharata epic. 
battle at home because we were sitting at the dinner table and I don't know what got into me, but I literally blurted out, I'm not going to be a doctor. I don't want to do this. I can't do this. Yeah. I thought the earth shattered. I, I mm-hmm. could have, I literally envisioned the earth shattering, yet here we are like almost 15 years later. And you're doing just fine. Yeah. And what is, when you said at the beginning, oh, can I be you? What you're really saying is, that's amazing that your parents supported you to do all these very different and really bizarre things and didn't question mm-hmm. fundamentally what you were Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, it's not that it's not that my parents don't support me now. It's that the support went through its trials of fire. Yeah. And it's and the trials of pessimism and the trials of poking every hole possible in it with great intentions, of course, and love, Mm -hmm. you know, because it never comes from a place of true malice. It always comes from a place of true love where it's like, here are all the potential pitfalls. But I think something that our culture, you know, the parents in our culture at least don't realize is that when in, in looking at the contingents and all of the negative contingencies, and only the negative contingencies, we actually get our kids to internalize that to where they cannot see the positivity and they cannot actually see their potential beyond Mm -hmm. this box. And to kind of something I think is really problematic about the model minority myth is it reinforces that all of us have to do the same types of work Mm -hmm. or have the same types of success when what we're then missing out on is the ability for people in our community to do very different types of work. Um, Something I've, it's a very petty thing, but it's something that impacts my life constantly is I can't get a decent haircut in the, in the America, in the America, in the United States, because no one here knows how to cut my hair properly. And if we just had more South Asians, men or women going to cosmetology school or like learning how to do hair or makeup and, being in places where there aren't huge pockets of us, then maybe I could get a decent haircut every once in a while. Come to Canton, Michigan. I actually, uh, in Dearborn, I found a good place. <laughs> but, but that's the thing, like in Canton, I just assumed that there would be no parlors because it's still, if, for me, when I go to Canton, it feels very model minority mythy of like all these new immigrants who want all their kids to be the best. I have like and, eight salons. Really? Yep. yep. Wow. We have eight salons. My mom actually goes to somebody's house to get henna done like once a month on her hair. Yeah. And, you know, she gets shy and like blah blah And then she comes home like completely relaxed. And I'm like, I have never had a spa experience like this. Yeah. But even beyond like recreating the Indian parlor, yeah. like if I go into a salon, I would love to see a South Asian woman cutting hair alongside like a Lebanese woman and a black woman and a white woman, a Latinx woman. Like that's what I want to see. Not the, we just need to recreate what India had to Mm -hmm. offer. Like, yeah. Uh, Or why, like there's so many other types of jobs that we don't encourage other people to take. It's you have to do the same swath of white collar work instead of doing something that might be more fulfilling. Absolutely. And I agree with your point about seeing a salon that has that kind of diversity all in one. And to your point, when I started telling my, you know, my parents and 
my parents, my parents sort of knew where I was going with this, but like my extended family that I was starting this podcast and everything, their literal question was, so you're going to record you asking pointless questions and getting pointless mm -hmm. answers. Yeah. And I'm like, but they're not pointless. Yeah. You know, yeah. these are important and they're like, uh huh. If you say so, yeah. And you know, of course, all of this was in Telugu too. So it was like, you know, yeah. you you have that little bit of like that Telugu shade shade happening shade. there too. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it was like, yeah, Atta, I see what you're saying. However, I'm still gonna do what I need to do. Yeah. And so I was talking one of my cousins in Hyderabad. This was years ago. I was asking her about her job and she wasn't happy in it. And I said, well, is it possible for you to find another type of job? She said, no, in India, once you're on a track, you're on it. And this idea of self-expression and creativity is so dissuaded, at least in the, the so circles that she inhabits. And then I think about what that looks like here when people are coming over and not like just not comfortable with the idea of your kids putting themselves out there and I get that it's scary but it's a conversation that needs to be had and we need to normalize breaking both like those cultural norms the conservative norms and the model minority myth within our own families absolutely absolutely you know I have a three and a half year old and I, I you know from the day she was born I keep telling her you can be whoever you want to be and I actually yeah. let that happen and I defend mm -hmm. her in yeah. front of other Indian aunties and uncles that are like, well, oh my she's, God, she's three and a half. What is she doing? But, you know, I still get that this is not how kids were when, you know, when, when we were raising you type of wow. things. And it's like, yeah, but this is how she is. So just yeah. let her be. You know, my parents live here too. So okay. I, I'm sort of like that in between generation where now I'm defending my child but I'm mm -hmm. still facing this criticism from you know or this this sort of extra spotlight from the previous yeah. generation and I'm like okay so I have to answer for myself now and I have to answer for my child wow the one thing I do know the one thing that my husband and I both do know is that we are going to do everything in our power to help her understand that the model minority myth has nothing to do with her existence. Exactly. You know, that that was her history, but that has nothing to do with her future because the history, like, we respect the history, but it has its place and it is not going to play a role in determining her role for the future. Yeah. That she'll face it. She'll constantly face it, but she doesn't have to adhere exactly, to it. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. it's... It's a really tough thing to navigate on a daily basis. It can be. I think that is something as like, I've aged into my confidence. I've always had an aggressive amount of self-confidence. Uh, who knows where that came from? But just recognizing that being comfortable in your own body and what the purpose you bring to the table just kind of outshines the expectations set upon you by other people. Wow. That is actually an absolutely beautiful segue into our next segment in which I am going to pick your brain on tips and tricks and techniques that you have for 
other Indian American men, women, and people of other genders, but also just other minorities in general. Mm -hmm. So we are going to take a very short break and we'll be back to talk about where you think the future is going to go and how can we handle it best as minorities in this culture that is built on white privilege. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And we're back on Leg Upward Inclusion Spotlight, making the invisible visible with me, Dr. Aparajita Jidagunta. And as you can tell, we are having an absolutely amazing, mind-blowing conversation with Sheila Lal, who is an NLC St. Louis fellow from 2017 and also a fellow Indian American activist, a Fulbright scholar who lived in Sri Lanka and worked in India and has just just has so many insights to drop as an Indian American who has had a foot in across so many different continents and so many different generations, you know, based on her life experiences and her family history and all of that. So Sheila, how should Indian Americans now navigate this whole diversity, equity, and inclusion space so that we can actually leverage our voices toward leadership? So this is just my perspective, but I think that something that's incredibly important in order for Indian Americans and Indian Hindus to be effective in DEI conversations in America is to understand our own sets and levels of oppression and identity that come from 4,000 plus years of cultural history. One thing that, a book that really blew me away is Juta by Om Balmaki. It was the first, first Dalit memoirs to be translated into English. My mom found it at my local public library's book sale in, I want to say 2015, and bought it for me because she knew that that type of literature was important to me. And I consumed it and it completely changed the way that I viewed a lot of internalized, like not necessarily casteism in my family, but like thinking about systems and structures that I hadn't been exposed to before. And by being able to think critically about what it means to be Indian historically and culturally, then you have a better foothold into deconstructing what it means to be American. We live in a country where obviously white is the default and any other type of American needs to be hyphenated. And to better deconstruct and normalize that American means whatever we want it to mean, you have to be able to understand other cultures too. We're all raised in a history curriculum that centers whiteness and centers oppression and violence as if it's normal and glorifies it. there's something truly remarkable about unlearning that and understanding the subaltern uh, histories that our, our textbooks never taught us. Starting with, and so fitting that we're recording on uh, Columbus Day or as Michigan now recognizes it, Indigenous Day, that we should learn about Indigenous cultures, plural, they're not all the same, that we should learn about ways that we erase Indigenous experiences and like visibility in our normal day-to-day language 
there. Instagram is an incredible tool for that. If you don't, if you're not on Instagram, um, listening to podcasts like this one, but that are hosted and centering native voices that indigenous experiences aren't just limited to Northern America, but are across the world. And what does indigenous life look like in India? Even like, we're going to talk about what it's like to be Indian American. Let's understand what indigenous Indians have experienced too. A second aspect of understanding Americanness is the impact of forced violent slavery in this country and not just erasing away the, the legacy of violence and trauma that's been impl- impacting a strong community or a really vibrant community, but what it means for us. Like when Indian Americans think that we shouldn't have affirmative action because it screws them over for getting into Harvard. My question is, who do you think fought for us to even get into this country? When we get angry that, or if we say stuff like, oh, that's so ghetto, or that neighborhood isn't safe, or we want to be in this neighborhood, or those schools aren't good. Think about the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and racial segregation and redlining has played into all those things that you say about Black culture. I think intertwined with that is our own internalized Islamophobia, which has only been compounded by post 9-11 Bush era policies and the the pretty aggressive campaign for everyone to be afraid of Muslims when we don't recognize that a lot of Islam in the U.S. comes from the enslaved Africans uh, of the 1600s and later like a massive part of Black culture, including up into hip hop and rap. Um, so for all the Indian Americans who love Drake and love hip hop, but don't love Muslims, like you got to look at yourself. And then last but not least, really deconstructing what being part of an Asian American community means and it being more than just new Chinese, new Japanese, new Korean, new South Asian communities. But uh, the history extends up into before the founding of this country, Filipinos were in what's now Louisiana uh, in the 1500s as sailors. So those are like, some ways that I have worked on getting a better sense and positioning of what it is to be Indian, uh, culturally Hindu American in, in the Midwest and what type of unlearning I've had to do in order to be a better advocate and friend, not just advocate, honestly, but a better friend to people whose life experiences I have, I'll never experience. Those are really actually practicable, simple things, you know, that don't take that much out of you. And the one thing I do want to add is to mm-hmm. any of my listeners who may not be exennials or millennials, no. but who may be new immigrants from India or South Asia coming in here because, you know, of the four, little over four million Indian Americans living in this country, about 81% of us are still fresh immigrants that are on some kind of H-level visas. You know, only about like literally only about 980,000 to just under a million are actually born in this country. So when you are talking about this history of Jim Crow and history of civil rights and history of segregation and racism and systemic racism, the the kind that still exists here, many people step into this situation Mm -hmm. in their privilege of selective immigration, not realizing how the history of this nation allowed for that selective immigration to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, so I would just add that 
you know, and I'm not saying this in a negative mm -hmm. way, but Absolutely. really know your place, know your history, know that when there are people saying mm -hmm. we have to stand in solidarity, mm -hmm. 100%. it is because there literally are hundreds of bodies that were laid down for us to even be able to set foot in this country. I think uh, it's not a fun fact, but it's a really solemn fact that is very much erased from the conversation of Indians in America is we lost, those who were naturalized uh, in, as Americans lost their citizenship mm -hmm. for 20 years. Yeah, with the Chinese um, exclusion From and, the 1910s nope. to 1930s. Yeah. Mm. It was Bhagat Singh. It was a around. It was a mixture of all these different anti-Asiatic laws, but Indian Americans or naturalized Americans lost their citizenship, and the struggle is around being seen as human and not just as labor. Vijay Prashad's first book, The Karma of Brown oh. Folks, something he said in there. Yeah, I read that book for the first time in 2013, and there's a line that sticks with me, which is, "They love our labor, not our lives," and. That to me is the epitome of immigration policy in this country and the way that immigrants of all types, not just the H1s but, or the H or Js, but all types of immigrants are treated until they prove themselves to be worthy of that love. Yep. And one way to show solidarity is to reach out to other types of immigrants and show that you love them for who they are or you like them for who they are, not just the type of labor that they bring to the country. And I know it can be easy for me to say this as an American-born citizen, but my partner is not a citizen. He's an immigrant on an H-1B who is Indian, but not from India. And he has become so much more engaged and critical of this a country that will be his by law in, some, uh, in the future because he learns more and he aligns himself more with understanding like black power movements and black radical movements and understanding what it means to be engaged at the local and state level. He knows he can't vote, but he can do everything. But, and so there is no real excuse yeah. to not learn. Yeah. Two things. One, I really want to interview your partner. <laughs> and two, it is so funny that you brought up the karma of brown folk, because when you were saying Vijay Prasad, I was like, hmm. Is she going to, so I actually quoted that book in every chapter of my dissertation because I specialized in Indian and Indian American psychology. Fantastic. And that's yeah, what my dissertation is. was on. I literally quoted that book in every single chapter of my dissertation. Yeah, he is. Uh, that book was truly paradigm shifting yeah. for me. That, yeah, that um, book was the first time where I think through that book and then writing the d dissertation, I, I, it was one of those moments where I like almost like, you know, this didn't physically happen, but in my mind, I yeah. slapped that dissertation onto my dissertation, you know, on my advisor's chair yeah. and was like, this is who I am. I don't even care if you take it or leave it. Damn. Of course, I still had to defend in reality. <laughs> but it and now you get to call yourself yeah, doctor. Yeah, but in my mind, in my mind, it was a total Bollywood movie. Yeah. I love it. Um, but that's how my mind works. My mind is always a Bollywood <laughs> movie, and it's, it may or may not match with reality. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as we wrap up, you know, I'm definitely going to have you back for several more conversations because there is so much more 
that we have to unpack. And truly speaking, I'm being selfish here because a large part of it is that I have not found anybody else that I can unpack Indian American things on this level until, you know, you and I started talking. Man, like Instagram has been such a gift. There's so many, so many interesting uh, accounts, uh, whether they're like history accounts or personal accounts that do the true heavy lifting and uneducating that um, I think we yeah. all need. So I can text you the name of them so you can put them in the show notes. But, yeah, it's um, funny, right? Because yeah. I've been contacting all of these people. Nobody wants to do a podcast. I feel like they will. You just got to, you have to give them the, the uh yeah, yeah. Prove it. I feel like once I send this episode out and be like, listen, listen, just listen to this. And then we can have a conversation <laughs> that I'm not just, I, it's not just, I'm just, you know, I'm, 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 it's, I don't want the fluff. I want the real stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, yeah. So Instagram has been really great for that. Back when Twitter was less of a cesspool, mm. that was really influential in finding other like people who thought more yes. critically and helped expose me to critical thought. But one thing I do want, to leave your listeners yes. with is there are so many different forms of education. You can get books, you can watch like stuff on YouTube or documentaries, but the easiest and most passive way to unlearn and challenge the way you perceive the world is finding podcasts that are hosted by people who are different than you and who are not making those podcasts for you. They're making them for them and their friends. And you get such an insight into the cultural clues, cues, and like importance mm -hmm. of different communities that you won't get if you just go to like a meeting. You're like, well, tell me about what it's like to be indigenous in Michigan. Like, no one's gonna tell you that. So that's a really incredible, like the internet has democratized access to cultural education. And if you're not taking advantage of it, you're doing a huge disservice to yourself and whatever type of solidarity movement you wish to be a part of oh wow i've never i've, I've never had a guest say that <laughs> say that uh the internet's a good place just that yes at that too <laughs> but, <laughs> but that if you are not doing your part then you're not doing it justice. You're not doing yourself justice. Like what are, you know, and that's something I say a lot to a lot of my listeners, but thank you as my speaker for also stepping into that space and really reinforcing what I'm trying to get to, you know, get my listeners to understand is that while I am getting your voice and all of these other voices out there, they still have to do their work to be able yeah. to participate in these conversations as fully informed or as fully as they can be informed citizens of the planet really it's not even about like citizens of america or citizens of anything else it's citizens of humanity and really just moving this conversation towards you know equitable spaces for people everywhere like Earlier today, I was recording a conversation about environmental justice and that, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the, the racial and cultural disparities in that mm -hmm. and, and how all these island nations are sinking, even though they've done nothing towards it. And it's like mm -hmm. nobody, nobody knows about these, like nobody can even pronounce some of these nations names, you mm -hmm. know, and or how like in Detroit, how there are certain parts of the city that are 
violently hit by rates of cancer mm. and asthma because of industrial waste that don't hit very specific other parts of Metro Detroit, which is like so close to home for both Wait, of us. Wait, what? So there are parts of Detroit where it's predominantly black that are, have experienced for generations significantly higher rates of very specific types of cancer and asthma for children because of the industrial pollution in the air and water. Thank you so much, Sheila. That was, this was such an amazing conversation. And thank you for yes, having me. And you, this, uh, you know, I can already tell this is going to be one of my favorite episodes to edit and put out there. It is oh. just so, it resonated with me so much personally, and it resonated with me so much as an immigrant woman, as, uh, you know, as somebody who's progressive and as somebody who is very involved in the Asian American leadership space, which I'm going to text you about as soon as we're done okay. um, because something's coming up. Okay. But thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. We are definitely going to have you back on this show. And for all my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Leg Upward Inclusion Spotlight, Making the Invisible Visible. And for today, my message to you is, how can you be true to yourself? And what do you need to learn about your contextual history so that you can represent yourself authentically, truly, and honestly, to be able to move forward into the future as a leader. For me, that was my takeaway message that I got from Sheila Lal, an LC fellow from St. Louis 2017, and also a fellow Indian American Fulbright scholar and just woman leader extraordinaire. She's definitely going to be back, and we are going to be back with a new episode soon. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful day. Bye.